Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Aloysius Farrell is one of the great journalists in our country. He's been covering the national political scene for decades, but is better known now as an author, the author of great biographies of Tip O'Neill, Clarence Darrow, and now Richard Nixon. I sat down recently with Jack to talk about his career and the careers of the giant figures that he chronicled. John Aloysius Farrell, I'm guessing Irish. The fourth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my sister does the genealogy, and uh, we are named, my father, my son is the fifth, and I all after the guy that came over. And uh, When did he a, come? Yeah, well, he came over probably just after the, 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 the really tough famine years. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a horse cab driver in New York City. Um, his son was a handyman. And then my dad made the took the family into the middle class by being an officer and a gentleman in World War II. He was actually at Pearl Harbor and huh. uh, um, came home as a major, got into a big Manhattan marketing job. And all of a sudden we were living further out on Long Island in a nicer house than the family manse in Jamaica. And we're about the same vintage. And uh, it seems like everybody who is involved in journalism or in politics, uh, always, it, all arrows always point back to John F. Kennedy. And I know that this was big in your, your home. Absolutely. My mom was ahead of her time. She was a very passionate liberal. Uh, Marjorie Powers Farrell was her name. And I can remember one of my first political memories. And it's interesting because I went to a Catholic school, and in the schoolyard we would fight over whether you were for Kennedy or for Nixon. And there were enough Nixon kids, enough conservative Catholic Irish kids out on Long Island that it was a a fair fight. And I would go home and, and tell her all this, and she would turn to me and she'd shake her finger in my face and say, Nick's on Nixon, Nick's on Nixon. <laughs> um, and we didn't quite have the, the, the triumvirate in the hallway of John the 23rd, JFK, and, uh, um, and the Sacred Heart. But within the, within the household, the Kennedys were, were vener- vener- venerated. And did his election, um, how formative was that in your interest in, in, in politics, in news? Yeah. Well, I was only 10, but that was Pretty, pretty formative. I can remember my dad coming home with a quarter that he had gotten in change, and somebody had taken a splash of red nail polish and drawn a cardinal's hat on George Washington's head. And so this was, a, this was what the Kennedy quarters were going to look like uh, if we elected a Catholic. So there was still a little bit of that feeling, that sort of ethnic, uh, religious pride uh, when he got elected, that made it something more than just uh, a normal Democrat getting elected to the White House. But you and I both uh, came of age. Uh, I was a, I'm a little younger than you, but 
you know, it is a cliche at this point to say the first television presidency, but, um, uh, you know, I found it transfixing uh, to watch him and obviously the tragic events that unfolded. Uh, but, you know, the civil rights movement, the right. Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, you didn't, um, but y- you went off uh, to to uh, to college yep. at University of Maryland. Is that where you? Uh, Virginia. Virginia, Virginia. University, University of Virginia. Did you know then when you uh, went there that you wanted to be a journalist? No, I actually went, still sort of inspired by the Kennedy thing, thinking that I would do pre-law and get in some kind of political job. And I was the high school class of 1970, so I arrived at UVA as the Nixon administration was uh, tearing itself apart with Kent State and uh, the uh, Pentagon Papers and then Watergate. And by the time that I was getting close to graduation, they were taking the lawyers away in handcuffs, and the journalists were being portrayed by Robert Redford and so it was a pretty easy decision. That's so uh, interesting. You know, I mean, I, I became a journalist in the same period. And uh, it really was a time when the the journalists were elevated as sort of the patriots who saved saved the country. It became uh, a noble. I mean, you know, I, I, there was nobility in journalism yeah. uh, I don't, earlier. But. Do you know who? I don't know who it was that came up with the idea of let's write all the president's men as a detective story built around these two young punk reporters. But that was a brilliant marketing and literary stroke. It was. And uh, and I think it led, I know it led, to an entire generation of people getting into journalism. Uh, you you had the, the uh, traditional route in that you started off as the gruntiest of grunts <laughs> in a, at a weekly newspaper. Tell me about that. Sure. Um, There was a lot of competition. I graduated in um, 1975, and there was a lot of smart people who were going into journalism like there are a lot of smart people 20 years later going going to Wall Street. And so the best job that I could get was I had to sell advertising for the Walter Reed Hospital base paper during the day. And for that, I had the privilege of covering high school basketball at night for free. So I could gather some clips. And uh-huh. um, the publisher, not the editor, the editor thought this was a screwy setup because he didn't like advertising salesmen writing his copy. Um, but the publisher thought I had spunk and um, decided that he would, he would push me along. And then a reporting opening came open near Annapolis, Maryland. And I went to work um, as a full-time reporter. They asked me if I knew how to work a 35-millimeter camera, and I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And then the first day I was there, they asked me to take a picture, and I had no idea how to open the back. And this was in the same chain? Uh, yes, yeah, so it was a weekly chain called the Sentinel Newspapers outside of Washington, D.C. And the publisher uh, is named Tom Marquart. That was later. That was the Evening Capital. Oh, uh, I that see. That was my first daily. I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah, so you took your clips from the weekly, yep. parlayed them into a, a job at a daily. And the atrocious byline, John Aloysius Farrell, which was done purely to, to make people remember my name. Uh, I it's working, memorable. I was working for this dinky little, uh, dinky little weekly. Yeah. You know, I, um, I started here at, in Hyde Park. I mean, I got a job in New York for six months, working at a little weekly, knocked on 75 jo- uh, doors, uh, took those clips, got a job at a weekly here. Ended up at the Tribune, um, but uh, but you were pretty famous because I can remember some journalism movie 
where somebody parenthetically says, call, call Axel Rudd. Yeah, who that was it? Jaws. That was Jaws. Yeah, call David Axel at UPI. That was pure happenstance. But uh, I, I'll claim it. I don't think they knew me from a bale of hay when they, when they made that movie. But I hear about that a lot. Um, but it's just, it's fun to think back at what it took to kick the door down somebody and get asked, those opportunities. Somebody asked me, um, now that I've switched over to this new field, uh, whether I had any regrets. And I said no, because journalism, newspapering was just so much fun. Um, and it lasted a, a, a good long run. And at the end, the money was coming in in wheelbarrows full. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it crashed. The entire industry just went pew. Yeah. And uh, it, what is your assessment of, I know you're still very much tied into the uh, journalism community, still active in the Gridiron Club in Washington yep. and so on. Um, I, I mean, I, I worry all the time, not about so much national coverage, although I have concerns about it as well, but, you know, you have the oligarchs like uh, uh, like uh, at the Post who are, you know, Bezos taking over the post, and um, and they, and they're doing great, and they're doing great journalism and so on. I worry about you know in our town, for example, two newspapers are really struggling uh, to survive. The the uh, Sun Times and the Tribune, your old newspaper, the Denver Post, where you went next. Yeah, uh, literally a plea uh, from the editors on the front page of the Post uh, to anyone to come and save their newspaper. Right. I mean, it's really despicable if you think of these hedge fund guys in in Washington looking around for small newspapers that are struggling and performing a valuable public service, especially, as you say, on the local and the state level. I mean, who's going to cover the state legislatures if, you know, if, the, if the newspaper and the wires disappear? Um, but they're going in and they're, and they're selling off the buildings and they're cutting staff and they're treating it uh, like a badly run chain of fast food restaurants, um, which is, I guess, is that's, that's capitalism. But, um, uh, yeah, you talk about the, the press oligarchs. But, you know, if you think, if you go back to the 19th century, as you know, well know, a lot of these newspaper chains were founded by rich guys, right. Citizen Kane, who wanted to um, – play a, a bigger role and these were their their toys yes so uh, no it's it, it's not the ideal solution because you need benevolent yeah. oligarchs yeah yeah who are committed to the public interest yeah. and, and you uh, and i were trained in like this is what i think this is what i think is the great loss is that you and i were trained by crusty old city editors yeah. in a religion in a catechism yes you know um if your mother says she loves you check, check it, it out. out yes um go get the other side you know be fair yes did you call this guy for for comment yes and all those old rules, which still, you know, they still sit on my on my shoulder, whispering in in my ear, um, are you know they're gone. If you, uh, for all the advantages and the the small d democratic freedoms of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you know, there is there was this priesthood. There was these. these, oh, yeah. these Listen, uh, I was. I, I always say I went to the University of Chicago and was raised in the Chicago Tribune newsroom and. I look back at the people who mentored me. No wonder you were such a success, David. With such, uh, <laughs> with with, uh, with uh, uh, I look back at them with reverence, you yeah, know, yeah. for the they mentored me not just as a reporter but as a person. Yep. It was really a wonderful uh, experience. Uh, and you know, the other day they closed the Tribune newsroom down and moved out of the Tribune Tower, which is going to be turned into condos. Yeah, and that was a. 
that was a painful, uh, dramatic yeah. uh, event in this dissolution of local journalism, which I think we're going to pay a big price for. Yeah, and I, and again, I think that the the ability of a zoning commission to pull something over, or the uh, ability of a city council to do something that's not scrutinized properly, um, and then of course the state legislatures, all that that is really, I think. We're at the point now where the danger is already here. And uh, on that you, on that point, you you morphed into an investigative reporter and did a lot of investigative reporting, first for the Post in Washington. Um, no, for the Globe. Uh, oh, the Denver Post. I'm the here. Denver Sorry. Post. In Denver, yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, wh- where was it when you were – was it in uh, Washington uh, for the Globe that you covered the House Appropriations – I, mean, I, I know that you were involved in uh, uh, stories about the exploitation of natural resources on Native American. American lands. That was at the Denver Post. Yeah. And I had the wonderful er- editor uh, named Will Jarrett, and he came up to me one day and he said, um, Indians. And I said, what about them? And he said, you tell me. And he said, take the year. This was like in February. Oh, my. Yeah. And so. Um, what an opportunity. That was an amazing opportunity. And so I got to go to. So you were still working out of Denver. At I was the still time. in Denver at I the see. time, and and you did. Uh, you also did uh, a piece on uh, how the Justice Department failed to prosecute rape and yeah, still, other still crimes a, on the a ma- on the reservations. Major issue. There's this sort of bifurcated jurisdiction on the Indian reservations where tribal courts and police handle some things, but the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI handle the major felonies, and they're just too busy, too overwhelmed. And there is, of course, just some. You know, it's just a bunch of drunk Indians attitude that um, caused these crimes to go unprosecuted for many um, for for many years um, awfully. And still now um, uh, the, the trend continues, as far as I understand. This led you to the globe. Yes. Uh, did, was it your investigative pieces that got their attention? Not so much investigative pieces as um Whatever I did, I tried to to bring something more to it. So I was a, um, a what was called a projects reporter rather than an investigative reporter. So a project could be, oh, when Gary Hart ran for office in uh, ran for president in 1984, I did a big long three page inside profile of him. It wasn't really investigative reporting, um, but it was uh, project reporting. And so the globe did you cover him in, like that. In a, during that campaign? A little bit. Um, I covered him more in 88 when he was yeah. the very short flame out. Our paths may have crossed in 84. I, I, I was assigned to Hart by the Tribune, which was a really interesting ride. Yeah, it was a... Um, kind of a tragic figure. Amazing campaign. I mean, Jesse. Yeah. I mean, we all forget about Jesse these days, but what, yes. what a meteor he was for, yeah. for two campaigns. Yeah. Yes, yes, in 84 and 88. Yeah. Um, the the now no, anyone named John Aloysius Farrell should be reporting, of course, for the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about your uh, experience there, and you spent some time in the celebrated Spotlight. I did and team, I, and I was also in New Hampshire, so I got two of the best, the cream of the crop jobs at the Globe over the years, and then I went down and covered the White House. So um, it was a good long run of twenty years. The thing about the uh, Boston Irish is, is that they're different from the Chicago Irish, and they're different from the New York Irish. In that in Chicago and New York, you really have this melting pot. You've got Poles, you've got Italians, you've got Jews. In Boston, it's still the Yankees versus the Irish. And so there's not some 
much of a relaxed, happy Irish person like you'd find in <laughs> Chicago or New York. They're still seriously at, at, at war with a lot of old past grievances. And that was a little bit, that, that was a little bit of a culture shock um, when I got there. People were always asking me, even within the Irish community, they were asking me, well, what neighborhood are you, are you from? What community are you from? Are you from Southie? Or, you know, where are you from? Mm-hmm. Um, so that they could, they could peg you. So that was an entire education um, yeah. going to Boston. Here they, they ask first parish and, <laughs> and then ward. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, that is the well, I made protocol the, here in Chicago. I made the mistake. I was speaking at Northwestern last night. I made the mistake to make a reference to the 1960 contested election in um, in Chicago, and I made this reference to the fact that uh, the Daily Machine was very upset about the fact that there was a reform um, state's attorney on the ballot. Ben Adamowski. Exactly, and yes. everybody in the everybody in the audience just just stood up and said, "Ben, we yeah, remember Ben." Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that was a that was take a celebrated uh, duel between those two guys. You take your politics seriously in Chicago. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes, yes. That's uh, uh, job number one. So uh, you were in New Hampshire in '88. What you were the New Hampshire correspondent for the Globe? Did you cover the presidential oh, yeah. primaries there extensively? And of course. Um, they had hired me, I think, with an eye that Hart was going to be the front runner. Mm-hmm. And then when he did um, uh, I see. Uh, fall apart in New Hampshire, I had some limited, limited more access than some of the other reporters had. And I was able to write a couple of pieces that convinced them that then they would keep me on the campaign and move me over onto the Dukakis campaign. Let me ask you one more question about sure. Hart. He's a friend of mine. He was a fellow here. We did a podcast with him. I always thought he was one of the most uh, visionary people that I've ever met in public life. Uh, Matt By wrote a book yep. uh, about that episode that ended his political career. What, what's your assessment of, of that? And sh- should he have been run out of politics? How much was his own responsibility? And how much did, you know, By argues yeah, that this yeah. was a, a, a shift in journalistic mores and it was. focuses. It was. I think, I think that... After Watergate, there was a, uh, and actually this is this is Hart's own theory, which he Gary explained to me. After Watergate, there was a feeling that we had to prevent a president who who was mex- messed up in the head, and we had to probe more deeply into personality, into um, psychology, and in, even into sex lives than we had before, and that he was sort of the first guy to un- undergo a different kind of scrutiny. I've often wondered whether if he had just stuck it out like Bill Clinton did, whether he might have survived or whether being the first one, um, it was just too strong a wave. I asked him when he was here how he felt four years later when Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton was nominated and elected president, and he just uh, icily (laughs) stared at me for a moment and said, how do you think I felt? Oh, what a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he's a very, he was a very thoughtful guy, and I think he really had answers for the Democratic Party um, that were that that were further thought out and uh, advanced than just the Democratic Listen, leadership. And council. he still does. By the way, yeah. if you talk to him, he has he he is a uh, he has incredible insights yeah. into these big big uh, kind of forces that are moving history and what the implications are and uh, what a loss uh, in my view that he had some kansas stubbornness i think that just he was not going to bend independence just a feeling of independence he was not going to bend to um the the prevailing winds and that was you know as as he said again um in politics your strengths are your weaknesses
You went down to Washington. Ultimately, you you made the transition from very fine journalist to very fine historian. <laughs> um, what, how did that happen? Um, purely by by chance, the newspaper industry began to have its hiccups, and I was standing online as a White House reporter, and Tip O'Neill's daughter was online behind me. And she said... This was after Tip had passed? After he had passed yeah. away. And she said, Jack, how come nobody's interested in my father's papers? We spent all this money, gave them to Boston College. They've all been curated. And I said, wow, you know, I'd be interested. And so uh, I went up there, went up to BC, and I looked what was there. And immediately I thought, well, you know, this is a book. This is not a magazine article. And that's how I got a, a contract for my first biography. But there's a great story about that. Do we have a moment? Podcast, man. <clears throat> okay. Knock yourself out. <laughs> um, so they gave the papers to Boston College, and after about four years, people were not going to look at them, and Boston College began to think that they needed the space. They had recreated oh, tip, Tip's office, yeah. and that they needed the space for, for office space for somebody else. So they packed everything up, his his paintings, his desk, mm. and they put him in storage. So the so the O'Neills were, were furious, and I don't know if you remember a guy named Joe Moakley. Oh, was, sure. Absolutely. He was from Massachusetts, friend of Tip O'Neill's, yeah. and head of the Rules Committee. Yeah, and uh, all of a sudden, whenever Boston College came down to Washington and asked for an appropriation, <laughs> <laughs> of which there were lots of uh, um, of porky um, yes uh, line items that were they didn't do well, did they? They didn't do well at all, and they finally pulled Joe off, off the floor or got him in the speaker's lobby, and they said, "Joe, what's the problem?" And he said, he just looked at the lobbyists for Boston College and said, "Tip was my friend," and sure <laughs> enough, within six months, Boston College had found room um, to recreate O'Neill's office again. And there's a big, nice display in the Tip O'Neill Library at Boston, at Boston College. And that, that's a great uh, uh, example of how Washington and Boston works. He Tip O'Neill was, was, was a larger-than-life character. He was. Uh, he, and you make the point, he, he uh, in certain ways, never got the full measure of attention that perhaps he would have because he followed in his congressional seat a guy named John F. Kennedy. Yep. And the Kennedy family was ascendant in Massachusetts yep. politics. And a guy named James Michael Curley. Yes, as well. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, but, but O'Neill was a, a, a kind of iconic figure in Washington. It was very easy. Um, it, it was amazing. His final great battle was with Ronald Reagan. And they both were, were two politicians that people took for granted, people underestimated. And so when they finally had this war, it was just a fascinating um, uh, battle in that summer of uh, 1981 over um, taxes and Social Security and, and budget cuts. And tip Because Reagan really was committed to trying to undo um, some the, the, the trend line of the New Deal. He yeah, wanted to— yeah. And the Great Society. Re —reduce yeah, yeah. the role of government in a, in a pronounced way. Yeah. And, and this, he, this clashed— Completely O'Neill's yeah. uh, ideology and philosophy and values. Yep. And at first, Tip lost. He got really, especially after the assassination attempt, when Reagan uh, almost died and then came out of that as a hero. Um, a whole bunch of Democrats A whole bunch of Democrats fled. from the South. Um, called them the Bull Weevils in yes. those days. And um, supported Reagan on the uh, tax and budget cuts. And it wasn't until he finally turned... Or David Stockman, who was his budget advisor, finally turned to Social Security as a target that they realized how popular these 
programs were and as upset as people were with the malaise of the Carter administration, they had not elected Ronald Reagan to dismantle Medicare and Social Security, as every Republican president has learned since. Um, people want... That's one well, place where, where, where Trump has not tread. He yeah. has uh, carefully avoided the entitlement programs. It, it, one, it, one of the frustrations of Speaker Ryan and and maybe one of the things that's precipitated his decision to leave. Well, I mean, um, Ryan used to go around Washington during the, as you no doubt remember, during the uh, Obama years, um, talking about the fact that someday the budget gnomes from, um, I guess, uh, Antwerp and Wall Street were going to arrive and take down the American economy because we had too much debt. And now here he leaves and goes back to Wisconsin with a trillion-dollar budget deficit because we had to give uh, a massive tax cut at a time of extreme income inequality to the top 10 and 1% of America. Well, there's debt, Jack, and there's debt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, have yeah. to, you have to know the distinction. And of course, their argument is that somehow that tax cuts will pay for themselves in the end by spurring economic growth. It's a view that's been uh, discredited yeah. by experience and economists, yeah. and and also David uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say that this that by you would starve the beast just by running up the debt so much so that finally you had to make massive cuts. Well, and that is in <clears> fact <throat> a concern. I mean, I, yeah. I think that uh, uh, I was just talking to someone uh, from the uh, Obama years the other day, and the and the fact is, not only is there going to be pressure because of this debt, but if we hit another economic downturn and there is a need for government to play the role that it has to play during these kinds of down periods in our economy, there are not going to be the tools that we had right. uh, in even in 2009. And we, we were dealing with debt issues then, but it's, it's going to be much more difficult. What about the relationship between Tip O'Neill and Reagan? So many people have... Uh, talked about yeah. it and talk about it nostalgically that, you know, here was a Democratic speaker and a Republican president, strong views, and yet they could share a, a drink together after hours and that they they had some regard for each other. Is that a fair depiction of their relationship? It's exaggerated, but it, like most exaggerations, it, it, it comes from a reality. Um, personally, they both liked each other enough that they could be infuriated and disappointed in the other one. Um, Tip always said that Reagan just was, he was a guy that was born in with a handsome face, went to Hollywood and was aghast at the fact that he had to pay 90% taxes during income taxes on, on his millions during World War II. And he forgot where he came from, which, you know, Neil's canon was um, the worst sin, forgetting where you came Because Reagan came from, right, from pretty Dixon, Dixon, Illinois. And, you know, had a real a father was an alcoholic, alcoholic dad, yeah. and uh, they struggled. Yeah. So uh, he didn't come from a silver yeah. spoon kind of background. Right. And uh, and then Reagan was he he you know he liked it. They could swap stories. They both were full of a lot of uh, blarney. It's a polite <laughs> word. And uh, um, and and the other thing about that 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 we that though that we miss is that Reagan had this genius named James Baker yeah. as chief of staff, and uh, O'Neill had uh, um, a, a trio of, of brilliant young staffers, and together they, w- they could find common ground. So you f- on Social Security, for example, they came upon the idea of getting Alan Greenspan to set up a Social Security commission. 
They both had interest. Uh, uh, Reagan wanted to move it off the table before he ran for re-election, and O'Neill wanted to protect it. And so they reached they reached a compromise. Like most compromises in Washington, it was almost 50-50 right down the middle. And they saved Social Security or preserved it in a good state for another uh, generation. Um, that's the kind of thing I think that's missing, not so much the, the tax personal. Re- tax reform was another. Tax reform was massive another. Massive undertaking. I mean, they actually did what you could, with a straight face, call tax reform. Yeah. And then you saw for the first time, too, you saw the snake in the, in the grass, which was Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich led this little rebellion among the backbenchers in the Republican Party, sort of a, um, a predecessor of the Tea Party mm-hmm. movement, and at times really frustrated Bob Dole and Packwood and the other senators who were uh, working on tax reform, and on Reagan and, and James Baker too. So you had the, the first sort of inclination that the old way of cooperation and fighting it out but having a drink and, and, and reaching a deal uh, was coming to an end. I did a, a, a one of my Axe Files TV shows with Baker, and you know he spoke uh, very nostalgically about those days and dealing with Tip and dealing with Danny Rostenkowski yeah. and uh, others. And um, you do, I think the the you mentioned Newt the the um, uh, you know advent of compromise somehow as a dirty word, right? Uh, that began then yeah. and, and is, is really threatening. To some know? extent, you can't blame the House Republicans. They've been out of power for 40 years. They needed another an, another tool, another way to, to go at it. Um, they saw their own leaders as being um, compromised by the by the Democrats and the and the and the liberal state. Um, but the, the you know the there used to be. I worked for National Journal for a while mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. as well, and every. A couple of years, we would do a, a chart of where, for example, in the Senate, people were ideologically. And you always had Republicans who were over on the left part of the spectrum and Democrats, Southern Democrats, who were right. over on well, the and right. The re- Republicans uh, on the left were uh, Northeastern, Northeastern Republicans, some Midwestern yeah. Republicans. Yeah. And then, you know, the Warren Rudmans and, um, and the others, they disappeared, the low wikers. And all of a sudden, if you look at that chart today, there's a line down the middle and everybody to the right is red, Republican, and everybody to the blue is is Democratic. And so it's almost like a, a parliamentary system. You don't have these these independent people like Howard Baker and Packwood and Dole. And I mean, and, and they were thought of as reasonable conservatives of their time. Um, the second uh, book you wrote uh, was about one of a guy I find one of the most interesting figures in American history, uh, Clarence Darrow, um, attorney for the damned. Yep. Um, and talk about that and why you took that project on. We're sitting, I should mention, as we yep. have this conversation, just uh, uh, probably less than a mile from where his ashes were yeah. just strewn after he died. He's, he's sort of known now for two big trials. Um, uh, the monkey trial um, in uh, the 1920s. About and teaching the, evolution in the schools in Tennessee. About teaching evolution in the schools in Tennessee, uh, and where he took on a famous confrontation that was made into the movie Inherit the Wind. Yes. And then the, the Leopold and Loeb trial, the thrill killers here um, in Chicago, not very far from, from where we're, we're sitting. Two young men who were students here who and lived around here mm-hmm. who killed a young man uh, just for To try to get away with the, the perfect experience. crime. Yeah. yeah. Of it. Um, and uh, 
Um, Probably the least sympathetic defendants ever. Wealthy, spoiled kids who thought it would be fun to try and kill somebody and get away with it. Exactly. And so uh, you can imagine what this prominent defense attorney who defended those guys were, um, how he was thought of in his time. But he he really had this very long career. He started out as a political candidate here in, in Chicago. Served a term in the legislature. Uh-huh. Almost almost uh, ran for mayor. Um, and then um, uh, got caught up in the union movement and represented uh, organized labor in a series of, of great trials. And Which then, almost landed him in jail. Yeah, he, prob- he, was, he was caught, and I, in, the, in the book I argue, he fairly caught uh, trying to bribe a jury um, in Los Angeles. And to try to save bribery. a couple of union leaders who had bombed the L.A. Times right. building. And, and killed two dozen people. So, uh, you know, once again, uh, he's, he's thought of as, as a guy, um, as the sort of magician uh, defense attorney. But what he really was great at was not getting not guilty verdicts. What he really was great at was saving people from the death penalty. And he was like, his record in that was, you know, 40 people that he got um, either exonerated or um, uh, life sentences, and one that that was at the first one, assassin of a Chicago mayor, um, that actually went to the hangman. Um, but he was he was a childhood uh, hero of mine, just because he was such a, uh, a rebel and an iconoclast. And um, and so when I read in the paper that uh, a uh, a a collector of Darrow letters had located Darrow's granddaughters here in Chicago. And gone down the basement and found a box with 400 letters stuffed among the Christmas ornaments um, that they had been bought by the University of Minnesota um, Law School and would be open to scholars. Uh, that was that was one I, I just um, leapt at because the, you know and and it's it's an amazing chronicle. He started out in the eight, 1850s and um, ended his career of fighting fascism and. Um, and and Hitler here here in uh, in America, and uh, and throughout all that time, um, he was just this champion of of civil liberties. He uh, he, as you mentioned, he was a champion of civil liberties, a champion of the left uh, for all his adult life, uh, and yet when he took on uh, the Scopes trial in Tennessee, the ACLU was opposed to that. You wrote. Um. Or unhappy I think it was. His I, think tac- it, his I think it was tactics. more his tactics and, yeah. and the timing. Um, they wanted a case before um, the Supreme Court, and the uh, Scopes trial, as an inherit the wind, very quickly turned into uh, something of a, uh, of a circus. circus. Yeah. And they were afraid that this would tarnish the cause rather than advance. Would have been it. fun to watch, wouldn't it? Oh, How'd maybe. you like to cover that one? Mencken did. <laughs> he did. That's right. Uh, a great confluence of personalities, because of course you had. Um, um, uh, for the defense, you had uh, William Jennings Bryan, um, three-time, four-time Democratic uh, candidate for president, yeah. and uh, the man who here in Chicago um, gave the uh, famous cross of cross gold of gold speech. speech and stole the nomination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wonder what Darrow would do with today's uh, scene. You know. Yeah, he was. He had a, a good streak of cynicism in it, and so he probably would chuckle a lot mm-hmm. um, uh, rather than. I mean, he would be outraged, and he would. Um, you know, I thought of it when when Trump was uh, inaugurated and immediately issued the immigration rules, and you had all these young lawyers going out there to the airports with laptops and sitting on on on, on the floors in the airport waiting lounges. And I thought, boy, you know, Darrow would be so happy uh, with with what's happening. There. And he would have been the first guy there. 
Yeah, he, he definitely would have. Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing he had was he had this great sense of drama, and he would pick cases and then stage them so that he not only was fighting a war inside the courtroom with the jury, but he was he was carrying on um, a public campaign because his attention was focused on on these trials. For example, with Leopold and Loeb, um, he he used it as in those days defense lawyers spoke for three days. And for three days, he spoke about uh, the unfairness of, of the death penalty. And so he used this as part of a campaign against capital punishment in addition to uh, saving the two boys' necks. Yeah, he would have been tailor-made for the, for the age in which we live because there's so many, as we've seen in contemporaneous events, uh, you know, a smart lawyer uh, in the cable TV age can— yeah. Yeah. Really captivate people. Yeah, and you know, and this was the age of of newspapers, and um, the the thing that made it easy for me was that the people, again, defense attorneys would speak for three days, and the newspapers would hire stenographers, and they would they would be a verbatim transcript of the day's speech in the paper. It would take five or six and his inside speeches, pages. His uh, orations in the courtroom were literature. They are, and they and what's great about them is that they were. He did not speak from notes. He spoke off the top of his head. And he sort of weaves back and forth. And you sort of, if you can imagine yourself in the jury being taken one direction, and just as as he's reaching the end of that point and it's a little bit of a downer, he switches dramatically to another point and he wakes you up with either a joke or with a, with, by raising his vote and pound, voice of pounding the table. Um, you know, an amazing actor in the courtroom um, as well. Uh, you talked about your... Mother pointing her finger at you and saying, Nixon, Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what would she have thought about you becoming his biographer? Um, I think she probably would have felt good. She was a great history buff. My dad would go out on the road and, and she would pack us in the car and take us to Concord and Lexington or, or down to Yorktown and Williamsburg. Um, so I think she probably would be pretty happy that I finally ended up as a, uh, as a small age historian. I, I hesitate sometimes. I to give use, you a capital. Use, I give use you the capital. Title, I, I don't I have the PhD. I don't have the PhD. Uh, so, uh, but let's talk about Richard Nixon. Sure. You know, he was a. I, I think there in in my childhood and in, in my early adulthood there was no more polarizing. You know, Joe McCarthy obviously, but in presidential <laughs> level politics, I mean, he was an enormously polarizing figure. I remember the day that he got elected, my mother was weeping. And I said, Mom, you know, you know, elections come and go and administrations change. And she said, no, you don't, you don't understand. This guy is a bad person. And she was fr- frightened about, uh, about him. I, 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 he was a complex person for sure. He was. I, I, I was immediately struck as I began the work on him um, by how protective the people who still survive him were about him as a person. And they immediately showed me that there was um, this feeling this was an awkward guy who tried his best, came out of nowhere, had great grit, great persistence, um, and but was just had this amazing, tragic flaw. I mean, it really is Shakespearean tragedy if you ex- examine um, his life. He comes from this awful background, this Dickensian background in Southern California. He runs for office. He has absolutely nobody to help him except for some local bankers and a, businessmen. In the Navy, came back. Came back from the, from Navy, the Navy, from World War II. And, uh, and does it all by himself. And within, I mean, Obama 
obviously mirrored this, but within six years, he goes from nobody to vice president of the United States. Yeah, he wasn't in the House very long. He yeah, ran a, a very uh, 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 historically significant race against Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was an, yeah. a congresswoman from California. Yeah. He, he, his campaign depicted her as the pink lady. Yep. This was at the height of the communist... Uh, uh, McCarthyism. S- McCarthyism, communist yeah. scare. Yeah. And yet, and this is the phrase I keep coming back to when I talk about Nixon, um, in 46, as a young congressman, he gets sent overseas as part of a congressional investigating committee to decide whether or not the Marshall Plan, which is Secretary right. of State George Marshall's plan to rebuild Europe, is a good idea. And his correspondence is filled with letters from his backers back in California saying, I don't want my money going to help some lazy Italian socialist or French socialist. They're just, it's going to be money down a rat hole, sand down a rat hole, pounding sand in a rat hole. Um, and so Nixon goes over there, though, and he tours the ruined cities of Europe. He's, he's walking through the ruins of, Nixler, of Hitler's chancellery, and these orphans are coming up to him trying to sell him their father's war medals um, in Berlin. And he comes home firmly committed to the idea the Marshall Plan is, is a good idea. Um, and so he goes back to Southern California, and he accepts every invitation to every Rotary lunch, JC dinner, uh, VFW hall, and he persuades his district to back the Marshall Plan to the extent that not only does he win the Republican nomination again, but he wins the Democratic nomination for, uh, for, for Congress as well, and he runs unopposed for his second term. And that's the, the great dichotomy, you know, that's the, because the guy was plainly, there was, he was part statesman and part, you know, yeah. uh, I don't want to say villain, but there was this very dark side. Oh, there. very dark yeah. side. And, and it comes from his parents. I mean, his father was uh, um, a very rough, um, at least emotionally abusive blowhard of a guy. And his mom was uh, sort of this Quaker saint who would retreat into a closet to pray. And so his entire life, it was, um, I mean, this is really simplifying things, but he was trying to bring a peace agreement to lay at his, at his, at his mother's feet and say, here, mother, this is what I've, I've done for you. Um, but whenever he was challenged in politics, he reverted to the, um, uh, the roughness of his, of, of his father. Um, there's a great anecdote, which is not in the book, of Nixon in 68 and one of the Secret Servicemen walking up the aisle of his airplane and finding Nixon, Nixon doesn't know he's there, pounding his hand into this seat saying, got to be tougher, got to be tougher, mm. got to be tougher. Um, and so he, he was just, you know, driven. driven. Yeah. yeah. There were, I want to talk about a few uh, anecdotes from uh, his very full Life one was the Checkers speech uh, in 1952. He had been accused of taking gifts inappropriately, and there was a real question as to whether Eisenhower, who had chosen him to mm-hmm. be his vice presidential nominee, would stick with him. And he gave a nationally televised address in television's relative infancy, yeah. uh, and Eisenhower was one of the viewers <laughs> watching to try and see if he thinks this guy yep. is viable in live television. A dinky little studio in in uh, in Hollywood. It's still there, um, and probably since that we're now we're moving away from the television age into the internet age, probably it's going to last for all time as the single most effective use of the media for a, a politician. But um, it was classic Nixon. Most of it is is well reasoned. Uh, he was a, he was a, he was an actor, and he was a debater in college, 
And he was so bad at interpersonal relations that he would rehearse. He would just rehearse everything, um, his press conferences, all speeches, um, and act. So his entire public life was, was, was an actor performing, um, a very uh, tongue-tied in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people. And so now he goes on, on television, and he's got half an hour, and he does this amazing speech, and halfway through it, um, he said, and this is maudlin, classic maudlin Nixon. Um, he says, you know, here's, here's everything that we own and everything that we have. But I tell you, I tell you this, there's one gift that we have taken and I don't care what they say, we're not going to give it back. And it's this little cocker spaniel dog that was sent to my daughters. And because it's spotted, the girls named him checkers. And so, um, there you get this sort of put upon, um, uh, Uriah Heep type guy, um, and that was part of his persona was that transferred into politics was his ability to see in his own life the grievances and resentments in the population and to be able to tap them. And I think that I think that you know I think there are many ways that the that the age we live in now is is an age that Nixon created, and I think this polarity that you talked about is a, is a direct line of descendant from, from uh, Nixon in the 1950s. Yeah. No, his, you know, he fundamentally had cont contempt for the elites, even as he exactly. yeah. relied on the Henry Kissingers of the world and so on. But he had a fundamental contempt for the elites. I have to tell you, uh, a guy I knew, I, I've said, this, this is a matter of public record. I, I worked for, um, when he was a young politician, for Rod Blagojevich, who ended up in prison. Uh, but Rod... Uh, one of the telling things he used to say was his two heroes in life were Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon <laughs> because they came from the wrong side of the tracks yep. and they were disdained by the elites. Yep. And uh, I think a lot of people, that was, you know, there was that real... Uh, and, it was, and it was true. If you go back through the elite publications, The Nation and The New Republic and this um, uh, Drew Pearson's column in the late 1950s, Herb Block's cartoons for The Washington Post... Um, he was treated as roughly as Obama was by Fox News. Mm -hmm. um, and so he did a lot of, I mean, he certainly was um, a precursor for McCarthyism. But um, he also, you know, there was a reason why once he became president, he stalked around the White House saying the press is the enemy, the press is the enemy. Did he think that uh, Daley uh, stole the election from him in 1960? Uh, he was convinced that the Kennedys stole the election. He thought that we'd have had to have both Illinois and Texas. And he thought that LBJ... Landslide Linden had worked his magic in the border counties along the Rio Grande and piled up the vote there and stolen Texas. And in Illinois, um, there's been one good study of it, which indicates that it's a pretty close-run thing as to whether or not the Daily Machine did. Um, the, like, you know, legend is the mayor held back the river wards, the so-called river yeah. wards, many of them controlled by organized crime. Yeah, but you would have had to have both of them. And then you would have had to... You know, you would have thrown the election all over again, as, in, as happened in, in um, uh, 2000. It would have gone on for an extended period of time. And he didn't challenge it. He, he, you know, he thought about it. And they, they raised the money for it. Tricia and, and Julie, his daughters, contributed their Christmas gifts to the Nixon um, defense fund. Checkers but, but, was spared. But in the end, he decided yeah, they didn't sell checkers. <laughs> uh, checkers did run off and get pregnant, though. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, um, uh, you know, the only state that flipped 
in the series of recons after it was Hawaii, which went from Nixon to Kennedy. So there was always that possibility there that if you open that can of worms, that you could lose some of your states because mm-hmm. the election was just so close. You you made news when you released this book uh, about uh, what Nixon did in 1968. He, he lost in 60, lost in California in 62. And then in one of the most miraculous comebacks in American political history and exploiting some of these very divisions that we were referring to before, he emerged as the Republican nominee. Mm -hmm. And he engaged in subterranean uh, diplomacy or or anti-diplomacy to try and, uh, well, you tell the story. Sure. Um, Lyndon Johnson, in the summer of 1968, he had already declared he was not running for re-election. So his one goal was to get a, a peace deal before he left office. And the Soviets sent him a message that, and this was the unwritten part of that message, was that we want to help Humphrey and not Nixon because Nixon's such a firm anti-communist. But the Soviets sent Johnson a message saying that if he calls a bombing halt, they would make sure that North Vietnam engaged in productive peace talks. That was the Soviets' word for it. So Johnson checked it out thoroughly. He called his commanders back from Saigon, talked to them, announced the bombing halt, checked it with Saigon, with the, with the South Vietnamese government, uh, announces the bombing halt, and all of a sudden the South Vietnamese government says, no, we're not going to go along. And the whole thing on the eve of the election, for the first couple of days with the announcement of the bombing halt, the election starts to go Humphrey's way. And then when South Vietnam says H- no- Humphrey being Johnson's vice president. Vice president and the Democratic candidate. And then it starts to swing back towards Nixon as people begin to think that this is um, Lyndon Johnson pulling a last-minute trick. And um, so he hears that the Nixon campaign has been part of um, the reason that the South Vietnamese refused to go uh, engage in the talks. And he sends out the FBI, and they eavesdrop on the South Vietnamese embassy in Washington and on the palace in Saigon. And they hear um, this woman named Anna Chenault, who was a Nixon campaign official, telling the South Vietnamese embassy, hold on, we're going to win. And we hear the South Vietnamese embassy calling Saigon and saying, the Nixon entourage tells me we'll get a better deal um, if you don't go um, to the peace talks. So Johnson gets furious, and there's this amazing, amazing tape from the Johnson White House in which he's talking with Everett Dirksen, the Senate minority leader. And he says, Everett, I'm reading their hand. This is treason. And Dirksen says, you know, I know. And so there's a severe crisis, but as in the fall of 2016, Johnson, like Barack Obama years later, does not have any proof that the opposing candidate, the candidate of the opposing party, is directly involved. And without that proof, doesn't feel that they can go public with it. And so Richard Nixon um, gets gets elected. By one point. By one point in a three, in a, in a, George Wallace three point, took five states. Race. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, very. I mean, Nixon ran two campaigns for the presidency in which they were decided by whiskers, and one in which he won a, a landslide equal to George Washington. Right. So, and ironically, the one that he won by a landslide was the one that ended his public career because right. of the subterfuge of Watergate. Oh, yeah. What propelled him? I mean, that election looked like a. Now that he was trying to get McGovern as his opponent. Uh, that seems clear. Um, but um, 
it's it seems so Nixonian that at the at the zenith of his political career, getting elect, reelected by a landslide, he had planted the seeds of his own destruction. Yeah, he had this uh, incredible insecurity and and self loathing from his childhood, and um, it would manifest itself, especially when after 1960, when the rich, glamorous, good-looking Jack Kennedy, who was his friend. Um, uh, won the election and may have cheated him out of the out of the White House. It manifested in Nixon in this determination that he was never going to be um, out cheated again. And so in Watergate and also in in the Chenault affair, in the Chenault affair, he went on David Frost and just denied flat out that he had ever engaged in this behavior. And what I was able to show in the book was by digging through the notes at the Nixon Library that he had actually ordered it. He had actually said to his aide Bob Haldeman keep Anna Chenault working on the, on the South mm. Vietnamese. Same thing with the Watergate tapes. You go back and you can actually hear a tape from May of 1971 where Nixon says, you know, Bob, what we need is we need more wiretapping and surveillance of the Democratic candidates now. I mean, it's, there's no question about, you know, how, how he behaved, but it was all because he had this uh, um, astonished. He was, he was the, the Shakespearean reference that I use is what he was the ago to his own Othello. He was constantly whispering in his own ear, you're not good enough. And there are times when you want to reach back through time and grab him by the lapels and, and say, stop it. There's this amazingly poignant tape where he comes home from China. This great outreach goes to Beijing. Um, changes, changes our world Course of to, history. today. And, uh, and he's sitting around the Oval Office with his aide, Henry Kissinger, and he says, you know, Henry, the American people, they're a bunch of sheep. They're impressed by all this stuff that happened in Beijing. You and I know it doesn't mean anything. And you just want to say, come on, mm -hmm. come on, you did good. So I, I can't let you go without talking about the parallels between you began to talk about, uh, because obviously the interference in diplomacy yeah. was treasonous. Yeah. Um, well, South Vietnam was an ally. So it's, it's more of this obscure, um, what's Logan Act? Yes, which was yeah. which hasn't really been invoked since the right, but which was 18th century, which was passed by the founding fathers for exactly this kind of thing. I mean, yeah. um, but talk about the parallels between then and now, and uh, it, it strikes me that Richard Nixon would have potentially survived Watergate if he had been in the modern media. He had no Fox News. He had no. Uh, he had no. Uh, Social media. He didn't have he had Twitter. A had a Democratic Congress. Had a Democratic Congress, and uh, there wasn't this great polarity in the country that we see right. today. We, we the the root of it was there. Yep. But as you pointed out earlier, you still had liberal Republicans. You still had yeah. conservative yeah. Democrats, and you had people who were willing to step up. Howard Baker. Yep. Well, I tell you, by in September of Weicker. September of seventy three, Republicans. Um, after the Watergate hearings, after all the revelations by the press, after he had fired aides Haldeman and, and Ehrlichman, his two top aides, his two top aides, um, Richard Nixon looks like he has dodged the bullet. And there's actually a, a peace breakfast where Tip O'Neill and Carl Albert go down and um, and have breakfast with him at the at the White House. And Time Magazine writes it up and says this shadow of our national um, politics is is now you know, moving off. And then there's the Saturday Night Massacre, and he fires Archibald Cox, who's the special counsel. And you begin to get these amazing parallels with what's going on. Um, today. And the American people immediately look at that act as an admission of guilt. 
by Nixon because why would you fire the counsel if you were if you were innocent you would have surrendered the tapes uh, the White House tapes that Cox was looking for um, and uh, there's this thing called a firestorm a political firestorm and it goes on it rages for about a month and within that time is when you get the first uh, resolutions for impeachment and then things sort of die down again and then in the spring of, of 74 you begin to the, the tapes come out and people get this glimpse of the Richard dark Nixon, side that you the dark side of, of Richard Nixon and finally there's what was called the smoking gun tape Nixon takes it all the way up to the Supreme Court and he fights for it uh, to keep those tapes uh, private but they finally come out and there's this one in which he is heard telling Bob Haldeman um, that they should use the CIA to cut, to head off the FBI's investigation uh, into Watergate. And that was enough for Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott um, and uh, John Rhodes of Arizona to yeah. go down to the White House and say, you all have no support Republican from all Republicans. You have, you have no support in, in the Republican Party in Congress anymore. Um, we're we're going to impeach you and we're going to um, try you and you probably will be impeached. Is it unfair to... Uh, Nixon to compare him to Trump, or is it unfair to Trump to compare him to Nixon? Well, Trump has not yet shown us the strategic vision um, that Nixon had. Um, I always hesitate to tell people, um, especially liberals, that you know this is a done deal, that this is a um, uh, a lost presidency, that he's not going to win re-election, because you know. Things happen. I mean, we would have thought that that uh, Bill Clinton would have been reelected re um, and uh, go on serve two two successful uh, terms. So um, you know, the left should not get start slavering. And for one reason, as you said, um, there's a much stronger uh, Fox News led media out there defending um, Trump. Um, but the, the the two places where the, the parallels are strongest, I think, is is the, the number of things that Trump has done and is accused of so rival uh, Watergate. I mean, breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters, his own little Saturday night massacre with the FBI director, um, and the fact that Trump also works on this in a, in a more direct way, much more like Wallace than, than Nixon. Uh, this politics of grievance and resentment on race. and um, um, But uh, on the whole, I think that Trump, I'm going to guess that Trump is an aberration. Um, we, you know, we elected a black man as president twice, and then we elected a woman as president. So the demographic trends and long-time trends. Meaning in the, in the popular vote. Yeah, the popular vote, mm -hmm. because uh, she forgot she signed the wrong scorecard. She had to give up her green jacket, but um, uh, like yeah. Roberto De Vicenzo with the Masters. Um, so uh, I think the longtime trend of politics in the country is, you know, is healthy. We seem to be um, assimilating, going out to this much more complex world as best we can. Um, but for a, for a number of circumstances, you know, this trend has resulted in a setback, whether it's one terms or, or, or two terms, we don't we don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, in the main, I share your view. The polarity is pretty pronounced, and the media environment is pronounced, and the, you know, there is actually fake news that can be yep. manipulated yep. Yep. and is becoming more sophisticated all the time. So vigilance is required here uh, if, uh, if our democracy is to be 
Uh, yeah, the, the disturb, most disturbing thing about Trump is that he goes much further than Nixon did in publicly tearing down the institutions. Nixon had been Eisenhower's vice president. He had a reverence for watching Eisenhower, and he had a reverence for the presidency. And he believed in things like you know executive privilege, and you know he stumbled into the Pentagon Papers, a fight that he never should have gotten into because there was a principle involved that the executive should be able to protect. That's a deep knowledge of public policy. Deep knowledge of policy. He had had spent his his wilderness years between 62 and 68 roaming the globe as a a lawyer for uh, Pepsi-Cola. And every place he would stop, he would go in and talk to American diplomats and foreign diplomats that he had known as as vice president. And then he comes home, David, in 1967, and he writes this article in Foreign Affairs magazine called Asia After Vietnam. And in that article, he says, there's this technological wave coming. There's going to be a computer age. And in this computer age, the the things that you need in, in a country are freedom and liberty and intellectual nimbleness, things that Russia and China cannot provide because they're locked in this totalitarian system. So he says the only thing that we have to worry about is that, um, you know, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, they're all going to blossom and they're going to provide a great counterweight in Asia. But um, if China is allowed to sit behind its wall and stew in its juices and emerge 20 years later as an aggressive nuclear power, we're going to lose it all. So it's essential that we make a reach out mm. to, to China now. And, and, and so he did. And that, again... Yeah, you can't see Donald Trump writing that uh, no, not right out of article. article right. yeah. So he did have this amazing vision. Yeah, Jack Farrell, it is great to be with you. I, I, uh, I am a great aficionado of your work and uh, highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in history. The, your, your subjects are fascinating. You, you have an upcoming, uh, you, you've now taken on Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, yeah. Again, to try to do what I did with Darrow and, and, uh, and Nixon, which is try, you know, these, these guys are, to a certain extent, great caricatures. And Tip was, was too. And to try to fill in um, the, 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 the shades of gray in, in the person. You know, I, 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 before I let you go, there was one anecdote I saw that you wrote about <clears throat> Ted Kennedy <clears throat> that to me was so telling, or you spoke about it in a oral history, and that is you had you were competing for Washington bureau chief. I don't know whether this was at the Globe, at the Boston Globe, yeah. And you didn't get the job, right? And one of the first calls you get, I'm out walking my dog with my wife, and she's consoling me, and my world is, you know, crumbling around me, and my cell phone rings, and it's Ted Kennedy, and. Ted is on the phone and he says, you know, uh, you know, you're going to meet some knocks in life and, uh, you know, you, you deserve this. I would have been happy to work with you. Um, but you know, you'll get through it. And I, and I hang up and I go, wow. I mean, this is a guy whose entire life has been dealing with tragedy, whether self-caused or, or caused by assassins or, um, enemy, uh, fire or whatever. Um, and, uh, and here he is calling me, um, and there was a pattern as I as I work as I do the work on Ted Kennedy. I find that you know, this was something that he did all the time, whether it was his mother telling him to thank to write thank you notes as a kid, or whether it was good politics that he learned from his grandfather, uh, Honey Fitz, the mayor of, of Boston, um, or whether it was just a, um, a, a connection 
you know, the, the ability yeah. and empathy to, to feel that, that, that at this moment, Jack Farrell is hurting. So let me get him on the phone. And I find it very hard to call people who have just had a, a cancer diagnosis or lost a loved one or something like that. I find it incredibly hard um, to, to, it's painful to, to try to know what to say and to, to reach out like that. And so, yeah, I think that... that, that it's an amazing... There are and, and, he, and that's why he was a beloved figure, even as he was a polarizing figure in American politics because he was a target of the right. He was a beloved figure in the Senate where his relationships extended uh, across the aisle. Well, I can't wait yeah. to, uh, to read that yeah. book. And in, and in the end, amazing, stellar... Senator One of the Curry. great senators yeah. uh, in, in American and history. And as soon as we go off the air, I'm going to ask you why he endorsed Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to tell you my, my, my cut on that. Okay. Jack Farrell, great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.